If you want to be turning into your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 this morning. And the title of our message is Peace in Jesus or Jesus is Our Peace. Before we jump into the text, I, I want to ask just a couple questions to get us thinking. One, what do you truly want from life? What are you longing for in the very depth of your soul? What motivates all that you do in your life? Now, another way to ask these questions is to ask, what is your vision of the good life? Everybody is motivated by some, whether it's understood, whether it's simply assumed, everybody is motivated by some vision of the good life, some idea of the kind of life that will bring fulfillment to us. And so based on what we think will bring fulfillment, joy, happiness to our soul, that determines all that we do. Now, no matter what you call it, what you're actually longing for is peace. Maybe not peace as you've understood it, but you're longing for peace as the Bible describes it, which brings us to our big idea and our next slide this morning. Our big idea, our main point this morning is that true peace, biblical peace, is found in Jesus himself alone. True peace is only found in Jesus himself. I'm going to read now through our text, Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 18. After this, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into the word of God this morning. The apostle Paul writes, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you, O oh God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you would allow us to be changed through the preaching of the word of God this morning. God, in a world right now that is so fractured on so many fronts, I cannot think of a text more important, Lord, more pointed for our specific cultural situation than a text that talks about bringing peace and unity to humanity and specifically to those parts of humanity that were so greatly divided. And so would we see this morning, God, with the peace that Jesus brings to Jew and Gentile, the peace that he offers to all of us no matter what our backgrounds are. So Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself by exalting Jesus through the power of the Spirit through the word of God this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says at the beginning of this text that Jesus, he himself, is our peace. We've gotta understand this, because what Paul does is he follows this up with this great division that was between Jew and Gentile. And what that's trying to point out to us is that there can be no peace. You cannot have true, lasting peace when there is enmity and friction and division between these various people groups. 
Therefore, Jesus unites that which is divided. He's got to do that to give us true peace. And so only Jesus can bring true peace. Now, in order for us to understand what Paul is telling us, then we have to understand something of the cultural backdrop of what was going on here. Now, the cultural backdrop that we have before us is a contrast. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. But to understand this, it has to be set against the contrast of what the Roman Empire would have been proclaiming to all of those around them. The, the, the contrast is this, is the peace of Christ versus what was called the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Now at the time of Jesus and his apostles, Rome was the dominant world power ruling over a vast area. The Pax Romana or the peace of Rome was this approximately 200 year period when because of the Roman rule there was relative peace between these nations that existed next to each other. Now, this was hailed as a miracle by many because there had never been that length of time where there was a lack of fighting between these nations. It was hailed as a miracle specifically by Rome itself. But this piece of Rome was destined to fail. It did not have lasting power. It was a type of peace, but it was only peace in the most limited sense of the word imaginable. It was a peace in the sense that the neighboring nations were no longer at war with each other because they had been conquered by Rome they were living under Roman rule and Roman authority and they had all been forced to live under Roman law. Rome was hailing itself. Now, specifically, it was hailing its emperor or Caesar. Rome was hailing itself as the savior who would bring peace to the world. Rome's idea is that they would unite the world together under this Roman peace. Caesar was Lord and he would usher peace into all the world. Now, for any of you who have been a part of the church for any amount of time, you can hear that kind of terminology that we will specifically apply to Jesus. The cry of Rome was Caesar is Lord and that they would usher in peace to the world. And of course, the Christian cry stands in great contrast to that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus will bring peace. The peace that Rome was bringing, though, now we've got to think about the kind of peace that they were offering. The peace that Rome was bringing was not the peace of freedom. It was the false peace of slavery, of tyranny. It was the peace that only came through oppression and persecution. Do you know that the number one tool that Rome used to keep the peace was crucifixion? This is how Rome kept those who, who would dissent, who, who would put their allegiance with anybody else other than Rome. If you would not cry out that Caesar is Lord, if you would not acknowledge that peace came through Rome and came through Caesar, then you would find yourself as a dissenter of Rome hung on the cross. The way they kept the peace was through the inhuman torture of crucifixion. And so what the Romans accomplished wasn't true peace. What the Romans accomplished was fear masquerading as peace. It was a lack of fighting between rival nations, but here's the thing. Not because the nations had reconciled, not because their differences were done away with, but because both of these nations, all of these nations, feared the wrath and the hammer of Rome. 
So Rome sought to enforce this false peace through fear and violent force around them, which brings us to our next point. There's a different way. There's a way of true peace that the Bible talks about. That was the contrast. When Paul says that Jesus is ourself, or is himself our peace, this is talking about a completely different kind of peace. This is talking about the biblical notion of peace. Now, the biblical notion of peace is formed from the Old Testament. Now, some of you guys may be familiar with the word shalom. You ever heard that word before? It's oftentimes in the Old Testament translated by peace, but it has far more to do with than just the ceasing of rivalry and strife and wars between nations. Shalom, biblical peace, has to do with human flourishing. It taps into the deepest sense of well-being and the prosperous life that is found only in loving relationship with God himself. You see, true peace can never come from oppression or persecution. That's not true peace. True peace will bring rest to your soul. True peace will bring well-being to your life. True peace will bring freedom to your heart. Now, I think when we hear peace, it's easy for us to think of this personal, individual experience that we have where peace is something that we experience, but if we're gonna understand biblical peace, we have to understand that the biblical view of anybody's personal peace, the peace that you or I may experience, cannot be severed from the state of the world around us. In other words, if we find ourselves in a world that is full of chaos and fighting, we will not be able to experience true peace because true peace and biblical peace in its fullest sense was not just an internal, personal experience that any of us might experience. It was a description or an experience of what the world could, should, and would be like under the faithful, sovereign, and loving rule of God. We were created in God's image. We were created not just to be individuals who could somehow live isolated from the rest of the world or the people around us or the world around us. And therefore, for any of us to experience true peace, there must be life lived under the ways of God around us. Now, all of that to say, true peace happens when the world and the people in it find themselves in harmony with God and his ways. This is why, I don't know if you've noticed this, in the Old Testament, you read through your Old Testament and Israel experiences peace or shalom when they are faithful to their God. Because when they're faithful to their God, they are living in harmony with God and with his ways and it brings peace to them. Now I want us to think about something which brings us to our next point. Before we look at specifically what Paul's saying in this text, one of the things that we notice from the text though is that there are certain barriers to peace. So let's think about this. What are certain things that would rob us of our peace, of our well-being, of, of our flourishing as humans, and keeping specifically in mind that my well-being cannot be separated from my relationship with anybody else? I think we know this instinctively, don't we? I think especially you think about you, you married people or uh, those of you who live together perhaps, uh, are you gonna have true peace if your spouse and you are fighting? No. Your siblings and you are fighting? 
No, there's no true peace there. And so, our peace cannot be separated from those around us. So, so what, are, what does this text tell us and what are some of the biggest things that are barriers to peace in this world? And it's this, different identities and different worldviews. Different identities and different worldviews. Notice what Paul says here, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. Before Jesus, Jew and Gentile were broken up into what Paul says is both groups and what divided them was they had radically different identities. Now, there were times when it seemed like everything that the Gentiles stood for, the Jews were against. And everything that the Jews would have stood for, the Gentiles are against. And, and you probably know people like this in your life, don't you? Where you just feel like, man, we are just so at odds. Everything they believe in, I'm against. Everything I believe in, they're against. And this isn't just the church in the world. Just think about the various political groups. Right now we see a, a vast division in the two major political parties here in America. And not to get political or, or take a side with that, but it's like everything that the right believes in, the left is against, and everything the left believes in, the right is against. In the same way, the division between Jew and Gentile was great on every front. Now, what's interesting is the thing that brought the division between these two was a misguided use and understanding of the law. When God gave the Israelites the law, he called them to a radically different lifestyle than the people who were around them. He called them to be different and to be separate from the world. But Israel was given the law and they were called to be different than the world and this is very important and I think very applicable to us. So that the nations around them might take notice of the greatness of their God and be drawn to God. Okay, so I'm, think about it. Israel, God gives them a law and he call, like, they have to live in such a way that they're very different than the nations around them. But the purpose of that was not so that they would push the other nations away, but so that the nations would be drawn to them. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through eight. You can write down the reference. You don't have to turn there. I'm gonna read through it fairly quickly. Moses, as he's addressing Israel before they get ready to be led finally into the promised land of Canaan, he says this. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me, so that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation. A great nation uh, is wise and it's an understanding people. And then he says this, for what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? You see, Israel was given a law to govern their life in order to display the nearness of God to them. They were given a law in order to display what kind of lifestyle people could live so that God could dwell in their midst. 
Israel was not given a law to push the other nations away, but that they might be a light to the nations, that they might be a testimony to the fact that there is a God, creator God, almighty God in heaven. And remember, they're not that far removed from the mighty acts of God, splitting the Red Sea, pouring out the plagues on Egypt, that this mighty and powerful ruler of the universe wants to dwell in the midst of mankind. And so God gives Israel a law, and he gives them a law to reveal that God could in fact be near humans. But here was the problem. Israel started to find their identity not in the fact that they were supposed to testify to God. Their identity was no longer found in the fact that God was near to them. Remember, the law was given as a means for them to experience the nearness of God. But what Israel did is they started to find their identity in the rules of the law itself. They started to find their identity not in the fact that if, I, uh, if we are faithful to this law, if we believe that God wants to dwell with us and be in our presence, and if we are faithful then to the law, God will in fact be with us. They found their identity in the, 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 what we call like the external signs of the law. For instance, they found their identity in the fact that their males were circumcised that they had a special and different diet from everybody else, that they had a legally binding one day a week that they were forced to take off of work. All of these things started to shape the identity of Israel. And so because of that, what they did was they pushed the other nations away. No longer did they understand that they were called to be different to draw the other nations into God they now viewed their distinction as a reason to push the other nations away. Now I want us to think about this. This can happen in the church too. We, we read the New Testament, the Old Testament, it's full of commandments and prohibitions. Thou shall, thou shall not. We are called, are we not, as Christians, to live a distinct life from that of the world. But if we find our identity in the specific rules that we do and don't follow, rather than the fact that God has given us these commandments that we might know him, that we might become more like Jesus and therefore testify to Jesus, that these commandments are given to us to facilitate this relationship that God wants to have with his peoples. If we start to find our identity in the things that we don't do, that the world does do, then what will we do? We will see ourselves also pushing those away from us when the calling of the church is that we would make disciples, that we would go into all the world. And so, too often, we can find our identity bound up in the things that we won't do. We can have this, oh, yeah, we're, we're not gonna be around people who do that, versus we need to find our identity bound up in the fact that God has called us to live with him near to us through Jesus Christ and that we wanna walk in the way of Jesus, we wanna follow Jesus, we wanna obey the commandments of Jesus because it's in that obedience that we get to experience that nearness of God that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. Now, the problem here is that different identities and think about the way that you might identify. If somebody were to ask you, who are you? Tell me about yourself. 
Some of us might answer, answer, well, I'm of this political party or that political party. Or some people's initial reaction may be, well, I'm, I'm this nationality or I'm from this country or I have this job or whatever it may be. It's these different identities. It's our different understanding of the world that causes division and distinctions among us. Now, the Gentiles... They were made up of a ton of different nations and peoples, different worldviews, but there was actually one thing that united the Gentile people, and especially in the eyes of the Jews, and that was that they were non-Jewish. They were the outsiders. So because they were viewed as the outsiders, it caused even a bigger rift between them. Your identity, the way you understand the very essence and core of who you are, it will determine everything that you do. It will determine what you like, what you don't like. It will determine who you listen to, who's gonna inform your opinion, who you won't let inform your opinion. Your identity determines everything that you do. So here's the question. How can people with so many different identities be brought together in unity and peace? How can groups with radically different identities come together and the answer is, Before that can happen and before there can be peace, those old identities have to be broke down and a new one has to be built up. Those old identities have to be broke down and a new one has to be built up. Now, before we look at how it is that Jesus breaks down these identities, we're gonna look at our next point. And our next point is this, is that Jesus is our peace. Now, I think if we're not careful, we can miss this. I think it's easy for us to think this. Jesus is the one who brings us peace. Now, is that true? Yes. But we have to say this, that before Jesus can bring you peace, he must be your peace. Before Jesus can bring you peace, he must be your peace. Now, Paul is emphatic. When he says he himself is our peace, Paul doubles up there, he himself, and it's a, it's a literary form for him to say, hey, listen, I'm trying to get your attention. It would be like if Paul put it in bold letters, Jesus is our peace. To say that he himself our peace is different than saying that Jesus just brings our peace or that Jesus has made peace possible. To say it the way that Paul says it, says it is to emphasize, now this is important, to emphasize the absolute indispensable nature of one's relationship with Jesus in order to have peace. Because Jesus is himself our peace, Jesus cannot be viewed, therefore, as some temporary means, something that we're using just to get peace, as if when we then experience this peace, it's like, okay, now we can be done with Jesus. Paul says, no, no. You need to understand Jesus is your peace. He's not just the avenue that gets you to peace. Having Jesus is having peace. I think so many people come to Jesus because they want something from him. Notice this? Like, I'm, I'm more than happy to come to Jesus if, Jesus if he'll get me a raise. But usually then what happens is once I get the raise because I don't need Jesus anymore. Too many people can be crisis Christians where there's something wrong in their life and so what do they do? They come to church, I need a little Jesus and then he's gonna make things get better and then when he has got things better, I'm back on the right track, then I'm done with Jesus. That's what happens when Jesus becomes a means to an end and Paul wants us to understand that's not the way it works with peace. 
He says, Jesus himself is our peace. Which is to say this, there's only one way that we can have sustained, lasting peace. And remember, when you hear peace, don't just think a lack of fighting. When you hear peace, think like fullness of life, like happiness and joy and excitement and all that God has created, what humanity was supposed to be in relationship with God. The only way that we can experience this is through our relationship with Jesus. And so if you find yourself leaning towards a little bit more of being a crisis Christian or coming to Jesus because I just think it would be nice if Jesus helped me get a little bigger house or maybe a car that didn't break down so much or maybe a car in the first place. That's not the kind of peace that we need. It's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers. Now, the next thing we want to look at is how does Jesus bring this peace? Jesus brings the peace by breaking down the old identities and creating a new one in himself. Notice what Paul says in chapter two, verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It was the law and it was the misguided and misunderstanding, misguided use and misunderstanding of the law that forged the Israelites in their identity. And, and in order for the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people and the Gentiles to be brought together, those old identities couldn't remain. This is one of the hardest things for people to do. This is one of, I've found in my witness to people, one of the largest stumbling blocks with people coming to Jesus. Another way of saying breaking down your old identities is a more classic Christian term. It's the word repentance. When you repent, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, this is who I was. This is the way I was going in my life. This is what defined me. My identity was found here. And it could be like the Gentiles, a thousand different beliefs. But it wasn't centered around Jesus. And biblical repentance is this. I am saying no to that way of life. I am uttering my judgment of that was wrong. And I'm turning from that. And repentance, of course, is always brought together with faith. You can't biblically repent and not believe. Because if you're gonna turn from your old way of life, you have to turn to a way of life that is now defined by Jesus. That old identity must be broken down. And it is very hard for people to do this. Oftentimes what we want is, is we want the salvation that Jesus offers, but we want to keep going the way of life that we want. We want the salvation and the, the deliverance from God's judgment and from hell, but we want to keep going in the same direction that we've always gone. Notice what Jesus does here. Israelites, now think about this. They were given the law by God. God said, this is how I want you to live your life so I can be near to you. Now, of course, they misunderstood that. They started to find their identity in, in the, like the moral codes and, and what made them different, not the nearness of God. But God told them, this is gonna be temporary. It was woven into the heart of the law. There is a coming Savior Messiah. But their identity was so forged in the Mosaic law that when God himself showed up in human flesh, they didn't want anything to do with him. Why? They did not want to see their old identity broken down. Some of us will struggle with this. 
Some of us so desperately want our old identity, and it's understandable, think about it. Your identity, it involves all of the experiences of your life leading up to that moment. It has shaped who you are. Sometimes if it's, for those of us, maybe it's, it's around your family or your main idea is that your identity is found in your family. You've poured so much time into the way you structure your family. Maybe it's around a career. You've done so much to get to where you are. And when Jesus comes calling, when Jesus wants to give us peace, he says, listen, the only way you can have that peace is if you let go of that old identity. He's got to break down your old identity if he's gonna give you new life and a new identity in Christ. And that's exactly what he did between Jew and Gentile. It was the law of commandments. And by Jesus himself fulfilling the law, we went over this in Wednesday night Bible study, Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, by Jesus coming, fulfilling the law, being everything that the law pointed to, the ultimate and full meaning of everything that was contained in those commandments, Jesus made the Mosaic law as a binding code for our life obsolete. Another way to say it is now, in the person of Jesus, Jesus himself is our law. We see in Jesus the fulfillment of what God calls us to do. Jesus does away with the old identity in order to forge a new identity. Notice in, again in chapter two and verse 15, about halfway through it, I'll just start in the beginning, says that he broke down the dividing wall, the end of 14, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. You guys, we see the brokenness of our world today. We see that there is just massive divisions between mankind. That there are so many things that have divided and fractured humanity. And until we are willing to let those identities that are outside of Jesus be broken down, we will never find true unity. We will never find the oneness that all of us are longing for. We will never see any sort of lasting peace in our world until we allow those old identities to be broken down. Notice what Paul says, that it's only once he has abolished the dividing wall only once he has done that that the enmity can be taken away. Because our identities determine how we think, what we do, and the way we view the world, the only way we're ever gonna come together is if those identities are broken down. But it's not enough to just break them down, is it? We have to be given a new identity in Christ. Which brings us to our next point. This new identity is that of a new humanity. This is one of the, I think, one of the most encouraging and beautiful teachings of the scripture. Notice what Paul says is that, so that, in the middle of verse 15, he himself might make the two into one new man. That idea, that one new man, I don't know that that's the best translation, it's the Greek word anthropos, it means humanity. Okay, think about the biblical story, and it's easy for us to forget the fact that the Bible is the grand story of God and humans of this world that we live in. God creates humanity in the garden. He creates us so that we might be near to him, have fellowship with him. God creates a world so that mankind can dwell with God, enjoy God, be in his presence, and glorify God. But humanity sins, 
We fall away from God and we become separated from God, broken down, and from that moment on, humanity is a mess. Humanity is not functioning the way that we've been created to function. And so if, if the problem that we see in the world from the beginning is that humanity is broken, we've sinned, humanity is broken, then it would make sense that the answer to the problem would be that humanity somehow would get fixed. Now that's a little different than I think the way we're classically used to hearing it, which is I think we hear the problem is humanity sinned and we're under the judgment of God, which is true, right? That we are liable for our sin and that God's judgment and wrath is poured out, but just getting out from under God's judgment is not the answer to the problem. If the answer to the problem is just getting out from under God's judgment, then the fixing of humanity doesn't play a part in the puzzle. But notice what Jesus said. He breaks down the dividing wall, the barrier between them, so that he can establish in these divided separate groups one new humanity. Jesus has come to fix every bit of the brokenness in our world. In his resurrection, Jesus is actually the beginning of God's new creation. He's the first fruits of God's new creation. And by our faith in Jesus, we can participate, not fully yet. We don't fully get to participate in this new creation resurrection life, but we truly get to participate in it. This is what it means to be born again, is that you have been changed inside and that there's a part of that resurrection life of Jesus that has made us alive. Amen. Finally, we're gonna look, we wanna just emphasize here what Paul says is that this new idea, this new identity, this new humanity in Jesus, it's found in Jesus and from Jesus. I think this might be our next slide if I have one or if not, I might have erased it this morning. Which is okay. Yeah, I think I got rid of it because I wasn't gonna say that it was our next point. That's all right. Okay, check this out. Look at what Paul says. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and then notice this, so that in himself he might make us, make the two into one new man. So notice first it's in himself, and then it says that he might make us. So that first part tells us that the only way that we can partake in this new identity is in Jesus. Now why do I say that? Why do we focus on that? Because we want to say this, your relationship with Jesus is everything. That idea of being in him, in himself, it's this idea of being united to Jesus. This means that, that we become one with Jesus and so you, you have to have that relationship with Jesus or else there is no participation in that new life. And then it says that Jesus has made us one, which is simply to say this, everything that was possible or that was necessary, everything necessary to unite these differing groups was done by Jesus alone. Why do we say that? Are you struggling for peace? Are you struggling for unity? You don't need to look anywhere outside of Jesus. Jesus can bring unity even even for those people who are at odds with each other. And what I mean is not true unity in the sense of like complete harmony in the world, but for us, as followers of Jesus, we are called not only to love the church, not only to love our neighbor, but even to love our enemies. And so that as we walk in the way of Jesus, it brings a measure of peace more and more to this world. So, 
What have we seen today? We've seen that true peace can only be found in Jesus. Now we've also seen that there's a false peace out there, isn't there? This is the peace that we see contrasted in this culture with Rome, but this is the peace that, uh, that, that's promoted a thousand different ways in our world. I want us to think about this. Rome demonstrated its power to bring about a false peace through fear, through the brutal execution of dissenters by crucifixion. Jesus, on the other hand, demonstrates his power, divine power, fueled by love and filled with hope by sacrificially giving up his own life on the cross so that those who disagreed with him, who dissented from him, those who hated him could have salvation. False peace comes through oppression and and violence and fear, but true peace only comes through Jesus. Instead of putting those who differed from him on the cross, Jesus goes to the cross to die for their salvation. He willingly goes to the cross to abolish the enmity and strife between differing groups of people so that he can bring about a new identity for us. And so as we close, as we think about this, have you given up your old identity? Are you willing to look back at your life before Jesus or those places in your life that are not governed by Jesus and say, that's not good for me? Are you willing to let Jesus break down those areas that define you but are not yet defined by Jesus? This is the question for unbeliever and believer alike. For the unbeliever, there can be no peace outside of Jesus. And for the believer, when we do not allow Jesus to break down those old parts of us and that old identity, we will not experience the peace that Jesus has already purchased for us. It's there. He's done it. He's made it possible. When Jesus died, by faith we die with him. That old man and that old identity is put to death. And so now we're called to live into our new identity. You're no longer bound by slay or by sin. You're no longer bound to those old identities. You can walk in the freedom of the new life that Jesus gives you. You have the Holy Spirit. You are empowered to put to death the flesh and to be alive in Christ. And so the question is, have you let Jesus break down those old identities yet? Or are there parts of you, or maybe the main part of you, who still feel like you're defined by something outside of Jesus. You're defined by your job. You're defined by your nationality, by your ethnicity. You're defined by your socioeconomic group. You're defined by your family lineage, whatever it may be. There's a thousand different things that we can be defined by. But if we're gonna find true peace, biblical peace, happiness, and well-being, we've first got to be willing to let Jesus break down those aspects of our life. So I want to do this. I just want to take a minute and pray for us. We're a new church. We're a church plant. And if we're going to be effective in this community, if we're going to be a group that's united together, undivided, if we're going to live in such a way that the world outside can see, oh my goodness, there is a way that I can have peace. There is a way that that I can enjoy fullness of life. There is a way that there can be dancing in the darkness and that our songs of hope 
can arise. If that's gonna happen, loved ones, we've got to let Jesus break down our old identities and build our new ones in him. And I will say this, we're all a work in progress, we understand that. We're all a work in progress. But when Jesus breaks down the old identity, it hurts. But it always comes with such immense return on that pain. Like Jesus will never break you down and leave you broken. He will only break you down to build you up and give you more life to take these false pseudo hopes and pieces and to give you true hope. That's what Jesus does. He will never leave you disappointed. There is nothing disappointing about Jesus and the peace that he brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have given us hope and that you have given us peace in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that in your grace you have not left us to ourselves, but by your mercy and kindness you will break down our old identities. And so I pray today, oh God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would put to death, we would mortify our flesh and the identities that come with them, and that we would find it our greatest joy and good to be conformed into Jesus' image, into the new humanity, and that we would find peace and unity through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.